Hey team of Eternal Optimists, it's Matt Rincon here. And before we launch into today's epic conversation, I've got a big announcement. Drum roll, please. My brand new book is coming out on March 8th. And perhaps even better news, you can get it for only 99 cents on Amazon that day. We don't run ads on the show. And if you ever want to give back and support the Eternal Optimist community, go to Amazon on March 8th and get the Kindle version for only 99 cents. Just search for the book title, The Eternal Optimist. It's never too late. And you can download it directly to your device. Now, let's get to the show. Welcome to the Eternal Optimist podcast today, my friends. It's great to have you here. We have a treat today. We have a man today named Sandy Solomon. I've known Sandy Solomon now for going on six years and he is a titan in his industry. He is someone that has been in the financial services industry for 25 years. Before that, he was about 20 years in the garment industry and he grew up in the garment industry. Professionally, he is as accomplished as they come. We are not gonna talk very much today about his professional accomplishments in the financial services industry due to some compliance things that we don't wanna wrestle with that. So we're gonna keep it all personal. And there are a number of great things that you can learn from Sandy Solomon. First of all, he's 65 years old and he is about as fit as they come in that age bracket. He still works out a few times a week. He has intensely disciplined routines. He is incredibly focused on serving people at the highest level. And in addition to being incredibly successful in everything that he does in business, he is incredibly humble. He opens up and goes, very deep today. And I don't know if anybody's listening to this knows him personally, you're going to hear some things you probably did not know about him. And for anyone out there who ever questions, how do you get to the top of the mountain when you have challenges to overcome? Listen to this story. Because Sandy, he's got some things he's overcome. He's going to talk a little bit today about his upbringing. He's going to talk about when things changed in his life, when something happened to his father. He's gonna talk about you know, the garment industry and the rise of the blue jean. And then just as quickly as that rose, it was swept out from under him and he was left not knowing what to do, not having any professional skills around typing or processing things on a computer, not really even having used a computer before. He then went into a different industry altogether. He didn't want to either. And it's amazing to hear his story. This is someone, Sandy Solomon, that has been a dear friend of mine. We've worked together for about six years now. When I first met him, he's just one of the most in, intriguing and real people that I've ever had the privilege of knowing. I would call him a mentor. I have learned so much from him. He introduced me to Sandler selling techniques about five years ago, so I appreciate him for that. An amazing human being. When you listen to him talk and you listen to his perspective, know that this is forged in the wisdom of a life of much accomplishment, of many highs and many lows. Without any further ado, I would like to introduce you to welcome you to the conversation uh, with Mr. Sandy Solomon. Hello, and welcome to the Eternal Optimist podcast, the show for optimists by optimists. This is the show for people who see the good in the world and want to make a positive difference in the lives of their families and communities. Each week, you'll hear inspiring stories that will get you thinking bigger and playing more offense in life. 
with your host and high-performance coach, Matt Drinkon. I'd like to welcome to the podcast today uh, a dear friend uh, and someone I have an incredible respect for, uh, Mr. Sandy Solomon. Sandy, uh, welcome, sir. Thank you, man. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, well, the, the, the pleasure and the privilege is all mine. I remember the first time that I met Sandy Solomon back in, I want to say it was uh, September of 2016. I, I go to Gusto. The, there was an ice cream place in Ballantyne here in North Carolina. I go over there to Gusto's and uh, I see Sandy instantly. He is the sharpest dressed person in the room. He's got the suspenders on. He's got the sharp suit on and he looks like a professional businessman. He puts his hand out to shake the hand and it's the largest hand I think I've ever seen and it was quite intimidating because I'm, I'm not a small man myself. Sandy's hand comes out and I thought I was going to get crushed and it actually it was a firm handshake but not a crusher so I was, I was thankful for that. But when I met Sandy, uh, he has a very strong presence. When I think of Sandy, the first things that come to mind are empathy, expertise in his craft, and a genuine care for people. Yeah, so those are the three things I think of. And, uh, you know, Sandy, if our guests wanted to get to know you, what are some things that they should know about you if they really wanted to know Sandy Solomon? I haven't had much of a chance to think about this, Matt, but a couple of things come immediately to mind. One is everybody needs to know that that I am a hypersensitive human being. Is I uh, I feel everything, and I'm extremely high on the EQ quotient, the emotional intelligence quotient, and probably a little lower on the IQ quotient. If you want to know who I am by nature, I'm a very compliant person by nature. I was a compliant child right? Rebellion is part of my story. So we'll probably talk a little bit about that. Interesting. So hypersensitive. Can you trace back the origin of kind of how did you develop into the hypersensitive person with compliance and then rebellion? I'm already very intrigued. So if you could start with hypersensitive, how did that come to be? Well, I, I think I can mostly blame my mother for this. I'm first born, only male child in my family. I have two younger sisters. And my mother adored me as a child and sang, you are my sunshine to me all day long, every day. That's the thing that I most remember about my infancy was my mother just smothered me with affection. And she taught me to be, I would use the word passive. My mom taught me to be passive as a child. And that's not a bad thing. Don't get me wrong. But it's something that I've had to to uh, battle. If you think about it, you know, Sandy's a nickname. And I should go ahead and just disclose that my mother and father couldn't decide what to call me when I was a boy because I'm named after my father, William Franklin Solomon III. And so my my parents never knew what to call me for the first several weeks of uh, that I was their child. Finally, my grandmother nicknamed me Sandy after my glorious Sandy blonde hair. And so... <laughs> <laughs> you can see that the nickname is, has, has outlasted the reason for the nickname. Oh, yes. I'm sure the people watching this on YouTube would, would appreciate this. Right. But growing up, you know, in the late 50s and, and 60s, as a somewhat pudgy little boy named, nicknamed Sandy, you can imagine that the, the, I, I was teased a lot as a child. And I'm very grateful that I grew up to be big and strong eventually. The teasing did stop. Yeah, I look at you now, uh, and for those of you who don't know you, Sandy is, he's in his 60s now. He's incredibly fit. He's very humble. He may not say this about himself. He's incredibly fit. He works the trainer multiple times a week. He's super strong. He has an imposing physical presence. When you see him, 
you might think he's a linebacker in his heyday because he is he's strong and for you to share that maybe there was some bullying or there was some pudginess you know back in the day I, I love to love to go back to that when you say there was some pudginess and maybe some kids made fun of that what was that like well it was it was unpleasant honest to god it really was unpleasant and so much so the one of the the family legends is that the year that I went into the second grade, I changed my name from Sandy to Bill and didn't clear that with my parents. Oh, my mother Ooh. came in for the first parent teacher conference of my second grade year. And my teacher said, you must be Bill's mother. <laughs> Who? Yeah. So my dad is Bill in our family. <laughs> my mom was real confused. I went by Bill for the entire second grade. Uh, and then eventually I grew comfortable with the nickname Sandy again, and I've been called that ever since. So. <laughs> but uh, I was so tired of being teased by my nickname that I changed my name. Like also, I think a lot of the people I've interviewed so far, even myself included, have had you know challenges at this phase in our life with you know I want to say bullies, but just with just with being a boy back in school and people picking on you. You know, for I mean, how did you do in school, Sandy? Were you a good student, uh, athlete, musician? I mean. What was that like? You know, I, I was one of the nor those normal kids. I played Little League Baseball. I was in the Cub Scouts. I'm from a nice family. My parents were good people. My father was a very hardworking guy. My mom stayed home and raised us. We grew up in the church. And so I was like an A student in elementary school and junior high school. And I look back on my childhood with fondness. We lived in a nice house in a nice neighborhood. And I don't really have very many unpleasant memories of childhood, except for perhaps a few memories of being bullied, not usually by the kids my age, but older children in the neighborhood. Moving on, uh, what happened in that transitionary period, kind of 18 to, you know, 20, 25, you know, when we're going into adulthood, how did your career get started? Well, I think the thing that I would most want the audience to know as a defining period in my life is the, the year that I was in the seventh grade, my family moved from Virginia Beach to Richmond, Virginia, and my father changed jobs. So he was probably about the age of 30 at this time with three kids. And my father changed jobs. He left a company that he was very passionate about. It was the Arrow Shirt Company. And the garment industry comes into my story a lot and went to work for a competitor and the year that I was in the seventh grade, my father, who died about 12 years ago, he had what was at the time was called a complete mental nervous breakdown. And he was away from our family for about a year. He was institutionalized. And so my father went from being this really handsome, gregarious, ambitious, larger-than-life hero to a shell of himself. He returned to our family the year that I was in the eighth grade. And he was, he was never the same. So at a really formative time in my life, my dad was absent from the family and he was really never the same after that. And we, we, you know, we had a complex relationship, dad and I did. I loved my father very much and he was a huge influence on my life. But at a time during my, you know, those really critical adolescent years when you're trying to decide what the difference between right and wrong is and which crowd you're going to hang out with and whether or not you're going to say yes to certain things or no to certain things, my dad wasn't around to counsel me. You know, that is uh, a defining point. We now know that he had bipolar disorder, which means he was manic depressive. 
So you're thrust into a place in the seventh, eighth grade year pretty immediately while you're moving to a new a new, a new city uh, where everything is new, everything is changing, and that, that father figure is not present at that time. And you're the oldest of three with your mom there too, who was a stay-at-home mom with you, uh, raising you. Okay, so that colors part of the history and, and shares where you were. So continue moving forward in the timeline, Sandy. What were the other pivotal points you can think of next in your life? Well, so I think it's probably important to talk a little bit about the rebellion years. So it started the summer between my freshman and sophomore years in high school. So I'm a child of the late 60s and early 70s. You know, I'm a child of Jesus Christ Superstar and the disco age and Urban Cowboy and Saturday Night Fever. Did you ever have a big afro back in the day, like a big puffy hair back in the day? No, but I had shoulder length hair. Oh, and I, man. I definitely had glitter socks and stacked heel shoes and faded glory jeans and knick knick shirts. And, and it was the disco era, right? Mm -hmm. I, I can imagine. Were, did you have some strong disco moves back in the day? Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. <laughs> this, is, this is fun for me because I, I, I see you as this very esteemed, straight businessman who always the sharpest dressed person in the room. So to think back to the long hair disco days is, is a treat. Please continue. <laughs> I was always a sharp dressed guy because my dad worked in the garment industry. And, you know, part of my story is I did, too, for about 20 years. Well, we'll get to that. So I think the summer of my rebellion is critical in my story because my, my dad wasn't around. My mom was doing the very best she could to hold the family together and try to keep the bills paid. And, you know, we went from the perception that I had. My dad, before his breakdown, drove Cadillacs and had a really good job. And we lived in an upscale neighborhood. And we went from there to being kind of on the edge financially. And there were Christmases where there wasn't money to, to, to spend on gifts. There wasn't money for my college education, as it turned out, and or, or my sisters either, because my dad had so many struggles after he, when he finally did return to the family, he did go back to work. He was never the same. So, you know, that summer, I made some rebellious decisions, and one of those decisions was to experiment with tobacco oh, and okay. then alcohol and then marijuana. And so by the time I was a senior in high school, I was already starting to exhibit the signs of a substance abuse problem. That my, you know, my grades went from straight A's to I received my first failing mark as a junior in high school because I didn't want to pay attention to my schoolwork anymore. I was too, I was too busy. Uh, I joined a social club. You know, and I remember the, the one moment I most remember and the one decision that I would live to later regret, at least for a while, was that night. It was a summer night standing around under a streetlight, kids in the neighborhood hanging out. You know, school was out for the summer. And somebody passed around a little pint bottle of Boone's Farm Strawberry Hill. And I was so desperate to be accepted by this group, this rat pack of friends from the neighborhood, I made a, a critical mistake that night. I decided to take a drink out of that box. And I didn't experience the effects produced by drinking alcohol that night, except for the euphoria of feeling like I was part of the crowd. And so that, that really has defined my personality as much as anything else I can think of is, is I still am insecure in that way, even today, even in spite of all my, you know, my apparent success, and that's indisputable at this point, I still, you know, struggle with this kind of need to be liked, if you will. Mm. Is this something, Sandy, that is this something that's easy to talk about or is this hard to talk about right now? Well, I've had a lot of practice talking about it, but it's never easy. It's a it's a it's it's a vulnerability. 
And I'm, I'm quite sure that people that know me casually that don't know my story, I am quite sure that I come across as someone who is supremely confident, put together, successful. I think if you didn't know me below the surface level, you probably would assume that I don't have a care in the world and that, you know, perhaps I might even come across as being overconfident or even arrogant sometimes. I've been told I'm intimidating. I can I can see that possibly, you know, just having known you for the, the, the way that I've known you for this long, for like six and a half years now, I can tell that I have, I've always looked up to you. I've always seen you as that, well, that successful business person. But even when you're sharing vulnerability and transparency, that doesn't take away from you're an expert at what you do and you do come off as, as very confident. So I bet it is surprising for, for people to hear that there is an insecurity there, but it's possible to be insecure and confident same time. It's like a balancing act, so to speak. And I think you do it quite well. And I'm grateful you're sharing that with us. So I'm sure there are people out there that might be listening to this that also struggle with insecurity and you know, to be able to see that someone as successful and, and as esteemed as yourself has the same challenge. Uh, it's inspirational to me, and I'm sure it's inspirational to others. And so thanks for sharing. Well, I, I appreciate that. I think insecurity is my default setting from the factory and confidence is a learned behavior. How so? Well, I think it's something that you practice. It's, you know, you, we've all heard the old adage that you fake it till you make it. And I think to some extent, that's, that's how I've. Well, let's, let's back up for a sec because you were, you were telling us a good story the first time that you kind of succumbed to that, that pressure and you're with the, with the, with the uh, friends, the Boone farm. I think many of us have probably have seen the Boone farm strawberry. Ugh, I don't ever want to see it again. <laughs> <laughs> but the Boone Farm strawberry and the, the fitting in with friends and being part of the crowd, you know, and this is in the uh, formative high school years. So please continue to move forward. Since my, my family, you know, my, my, my parents were able to keep our family together, to keep our family home together, but there, there wasn't money for extras. So as a result of that, I, I went to work at a very young age. I, I ended up working in a cotton mill in Columbus, Georgia. As a sophomore in high school, as soon as I turned 15, I had a job on the weekends and during the summers. And I was one of the very few young people, in, you know, mixed into the mill life. So I learned a lot of lessons from the people that I worked with when I was in high school. And I did graduate from high school somewhat easily. You know, after failing a few classes, I got myself together and finished high school. I, I enrolled in the local community college there in Columbus, Columbus College. Part of my story is that I've had several unique and interesting and lucrative career opportunities. But the real truth is that I have never known what I wanted to do when I grew up. I, I never knew that when I was a boy. I never knew that as a young adult. And I still today, I'm very committed to the work that I do today. I'm I'm very involved in my industry, and I've had a long and successful career, two, two long and successful careers in two different industries. But if you ask me, you know, are you doing what you dreamed of doing? My answer would be no, because I never had a dream. I've just very lucky. I've been very blessed to have some opportunities that came my way. Part of my story is is how I you know overcame the challenge of a career change in my just as I was turned forty. But I, but I digress. So I went to the community college for a few semesters, and as it turns out, this was in the middle seventies, right? And there was a craze going on around around America in the middle seventies. It was called the blue jean craze. So people that are baby boomers are going to remember this. So there was a period of time there where the 
only thing anybody wanted to wear from my generation was blue jeans. And I actually had an opportunity to go to work for a blue jean manufacturing company. So I worked in a mill that produced cotton denim. Okay. So I made blue denim. And then I went to work for Wrangler Sportswear in the in the middle 70s. I was the youngest sales trainee that was ever hired in the Atlanta showroom office. What what does a sales trainee do in the Atlanta sales training office in the mid 70s with blue jeans? It's the new craze that everyone's into. Like, what are you actually doing day to day as a trainee there? Well, one of my duties was to work in the showroom and make sure that all the samples were properly pressed and hung and in the right order and lined up with the catalogs and priced. And and so I did that. During that period of time, one of the older sales reps for Wrangler in Florida had a heart attack. And so at the age, I think I was maybe 20 or 21 when Wrangler sent me to Florida to cover for a rep who had had a heart attack. And so I was out traveling, covering a territory as like a 20-year-old selling Wrangler jeans to retail stores in the state of Florida. Okay, so you went from store to store with your supply and to sell the store to, to carry your product. That's correct. And that was your birth into the field. Yeah, that's how I broke into sales. That sounds tough. That's exactly right. <laughs> what did that teach you about resilience and grit and tenacity and you know some of the things I know you for today? Oh, man. Gosh, Matt. So it turns out that the garment industry is a glamorous business, and it, but it's not a very good business. It's not a, it's not a business that's very, it's based very much on ethics or integrity or it's, the fashion industry is very trendy. And so I grew up shooting and moving targets, okay? And I spent about 20 years in the fashion apparel industry, and, and it was like a roller coaster. There were times of great prosperity and times of despair and everything in between. And, you know, I've, I've had business deals collapse for reasons that you probably never thought of. I'll bet you've never had a business deal collapse because a tractor-trailer truck rolled over a car on fire, but I have. Ooh. Mm. I had a whole trailer load of product burn up one year that I was in the garment business. I, I had a whole season's worth of bookings canceled because of the war in Afghanistan. Mm. Okay. Well, so on the timeline, you're in this, you're in the garment industry, you're around 2021, 20, you're getting started, you go to Florida, you're in the field now, and this is a successful 20-year career in the garment industry. Are you, are you still in the rebellious phase this time? Are you involved in like a personal relationship at this time? I mean, what are some of the other details while you're out getting successful in this garment industry, Sandy? Yeah, that's, that's a great question, Matt. And it's, a, it's about... It's about half and half. So the garment industry was a great place for a young man like me who was feeling his oats and, and experiencing his rebelliousness, right? Because I didn't have a supervising, I didn't have a boss within hundreds of miles for years. I didn't report to an office. I was essentially self-employed, if that makes any sense, mm -hmm. as an apparel manufacturer's rep and working in a, a very trendy industry with lots of fashion shows and trade shows and cocktail parties and models. And, and you know, it was a very tempting environment for someone that had <laughs> problems with self-discipline. And so my substance abuse problems grew during that period to a point where they 
they began to affect my life. And I, I did. I married during that period. I, mar- I met a young woman married, and uh, she's also part of my story. But in my 30s, I, I, I worked hard in the fashion apparel business, met with some success, but I also cultivated an alcohol and drug problem. Well, thanks for diving in with us on this one. This is a tough one that a lot of people experience. So appreciate you sharing. And can you can you give us kind of the where that came to a head and you know how that might have impacted or colored things moving forward, please? Yeah, I I will be happy to. And, and this is it's a little bit hard for me to talk about today. I've I've been clean and sober since January twentieth of nineteen eighty eight. So that's thirty four years and some months now that I haven't had any other substance. No tobacco, no alcohol, no gambling, no drugs. So on January 19th of 1988, my, my wife of five years at the time, she, you know, she finally had had enough. And I came home one night from a trade show and I'd stayed after for the cocktail hour, which turned probably into the cocktail evening. And she left. She left. Her name was Renee. And today I know that the courage that it took for her to make that decision probably saved my life because that was the last night that I had a drink of alcohol, haven't had one since then. And uh, I had an epiphany that night, if you will. It was almost a spiritual experience. It probably was a spiritual experience, truth be told. Wow. And the next day I went and confessed to my mom, who, you know, I, I think I shared with you earlier from the podcast, that my sisters still say I was my mother's favorite, even after my rebellious years. But I went and confessed to my mom, who, by the way, was a total teetotaler. My mom was the Southern Baptist total teetotaler, never had a drink of alcohol. Told me all of my life that it was wrong to drink. You know, I don't think she knew why. She just knew it was because she knew the trouble it caused people. So her, her only son ended up having an alcohol abuse problem. So I went and confessed to her that my life was in shambles and I had a drinking problem. And that was the day that my recovery began. Wow. It was January 20th, 1988. Hmm. I bet it took some courage to have that discussion with your mom. It was my only, the only option left. I don't know whether it took courage or not. I think it was, it was either that or, or go on to the bitter end because the problem had, had, had gained control of me and it gained control of me. And it was, you know, I won't go into the gory details, but anyone who's ever had a drug or alcohol abuse problem knows that there's a point where you lose the ability to choose, you know, and, and that happened to me. Well, January 20th, uh, 1988, that's the day. And congratulations and uh, well done on, on making that decision. Well, thank you. Yeah, I don't take any credit for it. Yeah, yeah, it's a life or death matter for me. And one of the things that I've learned in recovery, I'm in a 12-step program and I'm very active. One of the things that I've learned is that if you keep a fit spiritual condition, that God will give you a daily reprieve from the insanity, from the, from the insane desire to escape or to to use, to change your mood, to deal with the pressure of life. God will grant you a daily reprieve, but it's only one day at a time. It's like manna from heaven, right? The Bible says, don't store up your manna. And recovery is the same. Recovery is one day at a time. So for the last 34 years and three or four months, however how long it is, I've had a daily a daily reprieve, and I ask God to protect my sobriety every day, and I thank you every night when I go to bed. So I take no credit for it. Well, thank you for your humility, Sandy, and being able to share this. And I think this is a good point. Just to honor you and appreciate you for you know, sharing this journey. This is something that many people are out there struggling with this. 
and to see how you've been clean and sober and impacted thousands of lives since then in a positive way of what you do now and what you did in the second half of your garment career. It's just amazing to see that there is hope and that other people can do it too. Sandy's living proof of that. And it's an inspiration to hear that. So thank you. Thank you for sharing that. I'd love to fast forward. Is there any other particularly challenging situation that may have happened in the second half of your garment career? Anything that would color where you go no, from I here? Was, I was very lucky. I, I got sober kind of right in the middle of my career. And at the time I was working for a family owned shirt manufacturing company. It was a very good job. Bonhomme Shirt Makers, uh, the, the family lived in New York and it was a domestic manufactured woven shirt line. Very popular. I did extremely well during that period and they were extreme, they were really supportive of me that, you know, one of the, they put up with my, you know, my, my nonsense for a number of years, but they were very supportive of when the time came for me to make that final choice, they were very supportive of that. So yeah, I appreciate that. Well, so you you did well in the garment industry. I've seen some great pictures you posted on Facebook over the years of you at the booth and, and you sharing the shirts. And I'm actually having an epiphany of my own. Bon Home was probably a, a shirt or a product that I, at some point, I think I may have even had these clothes. You probably sold to a retail store that we got this from because that name... Really, really sounds familiar. So anyone my age bracket in the mid 40s probably uh, has worn something in, in that, that you were selling. So uh, thank you for that. Very often I will see a Bonhomme shirt, even still today, perhaps on a TV rerun of Seinfeld. <laughs> yes. <clears throat> or maybe even one on the street here and there that survived all these years. And I recognize them. They were like our children. Every shirt pattern, I still have dreams. I still, I still see shirt patterns in my dreams. You know, quick side note, you just mentioned Seinfeld. Uh, is there a particular episode or anything around that show Seinfeld uh, that makes you laugh to this day? Any particular great memory there? The skill sets that I've cultivated is I can almost find a Seinfeld reference in, 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 in my daily life is very seldom does a day go by when there won't be a reference to Seinfeld. <laughs> Absolutely. My wife and I will usually watch at least one rerun episode every evening as we have our, our evening meal together. <laughs> so I've seen them all probably at least a couple of dozen times. Nice. Like the episode where George gets from the trash. If ever was it, was it an eclair that he yes. got out of the trash? That's correct. Oh. Yes. Oh, man, what a great, what a great show. That's we the get... episode, the fire episode, I believe, if I'm not mistaken. Is that the one where he ran for the exit and pushed all the women and children out of the way? <laughs> oh, my goodness. That was good. I'm pretty sure it is, yeah. That's good. How many good things with Seinfeld? That um, was a, I think that was the clown episode, too, if I'm not mistaken. Let's move forward. Let's go to the transition period, if we may. You you uh, have had two successful careers. You you went from the garment industry into your uh, second industry, and, and you, you serve a lot of people. You do great at that. So let's let's go into that transition period and, and share anything that's important to know that was a challenge or that's meaningful in that time. Yeah. Thank you, Matt. Well, so I think it's probably important to point out that I, I met the, the, the gal that I would marry, and we actually have our 27th wedding anniversary this coming Sunday. Her name is Lou. I met Lou in May of 93, and we married two years later to the day, May the 8th of 1995. So May 8th is my anniversary. And I was about to turn 40. I had just remarried, and the garment industry collapsed in the middle 90s. For the very first time ever, I found myself having to contemplate a career change. And I, and, and honestly, Matt, I, I have no idea what I was going to do. I grew up, my dad was in the garment business before his, his 
medical problems. My uncles were in the garment business. I had just finished, I think, about a 20-year career myself in the garment business, turning 40, and the industry collapsed, and Bonhomme Shirtmakers filed bankruptcy, and I was an unemployed newlywed at the age of 40. Wow. Yeah, and I only had one career idea, and this is embarrassing to admit, but my best career idea was to to sell cars. And so I went to Hendrick Lexus here in Charlotte and I walked in and asked to meet the sales manager and they turned me away. What? What? Yeah. No, they turned me away to sell cars at Hendrick Lexus. Perhaps the second biggest break of my life, other than the night that Renee decided to, to leave. Yes. He saved my life. The fellows at Hendrick Lexus turned me away and they turned me into a career direction that I didn't want to pursue. And so this is where I think the story gets interesting is I had a friend that was in the financial services industry, a guy by the name of Walter Putnam, who I think he's retired now, but but I've stayed in touch with Walter over the years. He heard about what was going on with me because I was one of his clients and he invited me in for an interview. And I remember going home and telling Lou that night, I said, Walter called and I think he wants me to come in for an interview. And this was with Northwestern Mutual. And I said, I'm not interested in that. There's no way. I just could not see myself being in the insurance business or the financial industry, <laughs> honestly, because I had no knowledge of it at all. You know, no knowledge whatsoever. Well, at this point, uh, you said, Walter, you were a client. So you had started to already invest. You, you already had a little bit of financial literacy and you'd started to, to do something there. Yeah. Well, yeah. I like to use an old Woody Allen line here. I knew that money was important, if only for financial reasons. I had a very clear grasp of the fact that money was important, if only for financial reasons. And so while I was in the garment business, I was pretty successful and I accumulated some some funds and those funds were under management. So I had some skin in the game, if you if you will. Okay. So you learned to save a little bit. I couldn't have told you the difference between a stock and a bond if you'd asked me at that stage in my life. So I went in, I, because I wanted to honor Walter and because I had regard for him, I went into Northwestern Mutual for an interview and that, that set about a new phase of my life where I began to seriously consider doing something that I never could imagine doing. Because here, here's the thing that we're talking about, this is now the summer of 1995 and I'm, I'm 40 years old. I didn't study finance in college. I really didn't even complete my undergraduate work, to be perfectly honest. And I also didn't have any typing or computer skills, never written a resume. And so here I am entering into what turns out to be a somewhat complex work environment, the financial services industry. And today I, I manage a practice. I'm the managing, senior managing partner of a producer group at the Equitable. And, you know, we, we deal with people's life savings every day. Well, to, to go from go from there to, to there, I, I'm sure there are a, a number of things that we could share. And what might be, uh, yeah, go keep going the next step that, that it seems important, please. Well, what happened, I think what happened was someone who had a tremendous insight into the, the psyche of a 40-year-old firstborn male asked me this question, what do you really want from a career opportunity? And I don't know that anybody had ever asked me that question before. And of course, I wanted to be in control. I wanted the opportunity to earn a larger than average salary. I wanted to do something that was socially meaningful at that stage in my life. I wanted freedom. 
I wanted growth. I wanted to do something where I could, you know, something that was ethical. And this person, I'll never forget it. She, here's what she said to me. She said, well, you know, Sandy, she says, based on your description of your ideal career opportunity, I couldn't rule you out. She didn't say this is the career for you. She says, I couldn't rule you out. And so to make a long story short, I went on many, many, many subsequent interviews with several different firms. I came into the financial services business in the fall of 95, not knowing if I would even be able to do it. I remember I remember studying for my securities registrations and opening these textbooks and looking at them and 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 I didn't understand a word that was being presented to me in those days. And somehow I managed to to pass all my licensing exams. And I've subsequently gone back to school and gotten a number of industry designations. And I'm a member of several pretty elite clubs in my firm, right? In the fall of 95, I didn't know the difference between stock and a pollen. And I didn't know how to type. And I didn't know how to write a resume. Goodness. It's, you've, you've shared this several times on our discussion. You've shared somehow you managed to blank. You managed to get by, make it happen, be successful, figure it out. I'm, I'm, I'm sensing that over time, there's just this built-in, I'm going to make it happen, or I can do it, or there's just some grit to you, some never give up to you. Yeah, no, and I think I have some grit, but I'll tell you this, Matt, it's amazing what people can do when their backs are against the wall. Mm. So, you know, remember I said a little while ago, I've had a couple of lucrative and interesting career opportunities that were just, that I just lucked into. Well, if they'd offered me a, a job at Hendrick Lexus, I'd probably still be a car salesman today, right? And so I think that God closed that door so that he could open this one for me. And, and the path was much more difficult, was much more difficult. But that's one of the things that I'm most proud of today is that I've been able to excel in an industry that's, that's, that's challenging. It's, it's, this is a hard business. I want to capture what you just said right there. That was so brilliant that when, when one door closes, it, it, God opens another way for another one. You know, when one seemingly like heartbreaking, challenging event happens, another greater opportunity is there. There's a lesson to be learned there. And you've shared that time and again. And I wanted to point that out uh, that they can do it. Everyone can do it because you're, you're living proof of that. Back to you, Sandy. Back to you. I'm not, you know, I, I, I perhaps am living proof it can happen. I, you know, I think sometimes God sends us to a foreign land mm -hmm. to become a missionary. Mm. And I think God sent me to a foreign land to become a missionary because remember I told you that my father, after he had his nervous breakdown, that my family had financial troubles from that point forward. Mm -hmm. And and in fact, as much as I love my dad, I, I think I, I, I'm not too embarrassed to say that he died broke. My father did. And so the financial industry has given me a place to have a ministry. It's given me a place to help people that I care about and solve this problem, right, of not, of not having any financial security in their lives. And I can tell you for a fact that money won't, money won't buy happiness. I know that. But if you don't have any, it's all you can think about. So I've devoted the last 27 years now of my professional life to helping people overcome the, the challenge of running out of money. Hmm. And that's different for everybody. But I've been able to use the, you know, what I knew about money in the first place, which is money is important, if only for financial reasons. I've been able mm -hmm. to use that every day for the last 27 years. Why is, why is money so hard for so many people? Like the mindset behind it. We'll start with that. Human psychology is complicated. It's why do some people 
take money for granted and others do not? Why do some people think they're worthy to have money and others do not? Why do some people value their time and energy while, while others do not? I think a lot of it is learned. But and, and, and that's not to say that having money makes you better than anybody else, because it does not. It, there are two kinds of challenges, the challenges associated with not enough money and the challenges associated with too much. Okay. Because I find that too much money, you know, that challenges people's character oftentimes and, and can make them selfish. But not having enough money presents even graver issues. So hmm. it's but but I don't know that there's any one answer to that question is why, you know, why do people struggle so with decisions around money? And and and, and I don't know the answer to that. All, all I know is that I've been given an opportunity to help people sort through those challenges. And I seem to have, you know, some unique affinity for doing that, mm -hmm. even if it's only learning how to ask the right questions. Well, you just hit the, I'd say the jackpot there with asking the right questions simply because you're one of the people that's been a mentor to me in learning how to ask the right questions. And, and what I do for a living, asking questions is important. So can you chronicle or detail for us a little bit about maybe asking great questions or anything around how you practice asking these great questions over time? Yeah, I can do that as long as I'm allowed to give a plug for my favorite sales training program. Am I allowed to do that on the podcast? Uh, well, it's also mine. So yes, please. <laughs> <laughs> so when I was in the garment business, it was it was my job to to work with professional buyers, buyers that were really paid to see salespeople and paid to look at merchandise and make buying decisions with other people's money. And I thought I was in sales, but that was really more of a logistics business than it was a sales business. If you had what they wanted and needed, you didn't need a lot of skill, right? Well, the financial industry is very different because the financial industry is a crowded field. Everybody sells essentially the same products. In fact, most of the time, they're exactly the same products or they are so similar that a, an untrained eye can't tell the difference. And there's a lot of, it's a very competitive field. And so I, I discovered pretty early on in my career in financial services that I was going to have to develop some skills to direct the sales conversation uh, in a productive way. And so I, I, I was introduced to a fellow named Jim Dunn, who lives here in Charlotte, who was the owner of a sales training franchise called the Sandler Selling System, mm -hmm. created by David Sandler. And I'm, I'm still a student of Sandler. I still go to practice on Fridays, just like people practice golf. I, I practice my selling skills in Sandler sales mastery classes on Fridays. It's something that I've devoted a lot of my time and energy to. And it's made, it's, it's added a, a, a new element to my business career. And it's, it's a method of communication that empowers people and allows people to tell you the truth. And I think that's, that's the biggest problem salespeople have is they don't want to hear the truth. They want to hear what they want to hear. They don't want to hear no thank you. They want to hear yes. And so they design all of their activities and conversations around the idea of persuading people to do things. And I learned a long time ago that people are going to do what they want to do. And for me to be effective, the best way is to find out what they want to do and give them permission to do just that and to get out of their way and help them do it, right? And I, I think I, I, I hired Jim Dunn as a sales coach because I didn't know, I didn't know how to get around the let us think it over question. Mm, yeah. Well, how do we get around that? How do we get around? Let us think it over. <laughs> how do we get around? Let us think it over. That, that sounds pretty interesting. Yeah, well, that's, uh, that's sales purgatory. Is That is not a truth. No one's thinking it over. They're just telling you that perhaps to get you to leave or leave them alone. 
Yes. <laughs> Yes. I, Sandy, I so much appreciate you sharing and, and love the plug for Jim Dunn. I, I also, at, at your recommendation, uh, several years ago, I enrolled in Jim Dunn's course and took it, uh, the Sandler Foundations course, and absolutely loved it. And it has colored every uh, presentation I've given ever since. So I'm a big proponent of it as well. I love it. In fact, the book we first read around Sandler that you first introduced me to was called... You Can't Teach a Kid to buy a, Ride a Bike in a Seminar. Can't Teach a Kid to Ride a Bike at a Seminar. It's a yellow book. It's brilliantly written, and it's so simple, so simple to understand it. Make sure that the uh, the prospect, the client, the person you're speaking with always know where they stand. Keep the information in front of you so there's never any wonder or curiosity or mystification about what's happening. Everyone knows. It's, it's pretty transparent, so I love it, and thank Give you Give your that. prospective clients unmitigated permission to tell you the cold, hard truth. <laughs> yes. Learn, yes. Learn, you know. Jack Nicholson uh, made that line famous, you can't handle the truth. Well, I, I think that that's true of most salespeople is they can't handle the truth. They're so intent on closing this deal that they forget that there's somebody on the other side of the transaction whose needs must be met. And it has to be something they want to do. All right. So quick side tangent here down the rabbit hole. Jack Nicholson, your favorite movie with Jack Nicholson. I'll go first. I will remember that A Few Good Men forever for that line you just shared. My favorite Jack Nicholson movie was not that one, though. I love that one. My favorite one was him and Batman with Michael Keaton. There were so many Batmans made, but I remember him being the Joker from Batman. And that was back in the 80s when I was you know, in junior high school and absolutely loved it. I knew Michael Keaton as Mr. Mom, by the way, 1983 in first grade. Uh, but that was my favorite Jack Nicholson as Batman. How about you? You know, it's, it, I think probably One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest would be my first choice. I, I, I like the Nicholson movies where he's, you know, he's, he's got some kind of mental illness. <laughs> oh, yeah. Man, that nurse, she really gives it to him in that. And she's so stoic and just so straight-faced the whole, whole show. That was a good one. I think my favorite Nicholson line, other than you can't handle the truth, is sell crazy someplace else. We're all stocked up here. <laughs> yes. Oh, good one. Today's sponsor of the Eternal Optimist podcast is Make Eye Contact. Very simple. Seems kind of natural, right? Wrong. How many times are you having a conversation with someone and they're looking the other direction? They're looking at their shoes, looking at their phone, looking at their watch. When you want to make a genuine connection with someone, make good eye contact. Make it consistently. Don't stare too long. Make good eye contact. A sponsor for today's episode of the Eternal Optimist Podcast. Okay, good one. So let's uh, let's start to move to wrap this thing up here, Sandy. Uh, we've been talking for some time. It's been incredibly insightful. I'd love to go to uh, the last question and give you some time to think about any advice that you'd like to offer someone who's overcoming any major challenges in their life, whether it's any addiction or it's a financial challenge. It's just advice from someone who has overcome so much. What advice might you like to offer someone? So I, I have one go-to answer to this question, and I may have perhaps shared this with you before, but I'll share it with the audience also, is in the summer of 95, when I was contemplating my career choice decision, I, I was looking at a bunch of options that did not appeal to me. What I really wanted to do was stay in the apparel business, but it wasn't possible for me to do that. I certainly didn't want to start my career over again. And I became depressed 
that summer, even though I had just remarried to a, a just an incredibly beautiful and wonderful gal who is my, still my wife today, I was so I was so depressed that I sought the help of a psychiatrist. I thought I needed to be medicated. Okay. And I spent exactly 50 minutes with a very capable psychiatrist, told him the story about why I thought I needed to be prescribed medication for depression. And he, he, here's what he said to me. He said, you know, Sandy, he said, I'm not going to write a prescription for you. He said, your, your depression is situational. And the reason for your depression is that you are not flexible. You are not flexible. You think that there's only one answer to your problem and that all the others are wrong. So you're putting all this pressure on making the one right decision. Then he said, words I'll never forget. He said, that's not how it is. How it is, is you make a decision. If it doesn't turn out as well as you'd hoped, you'll have opportunities to make different decisions in the future. And that resonated as truth to me. And so I left that 50-minute appointment with the psychiatrist. I saw him exactly one time. And I went home and I told Lou what happened. And I made a phone call to my current employer. And I said, I'd like to accept the offer to come to work. Having no idea if I would like it, if I would find it interesting, if I would even be able to do it. I was deeply suspicious of the whole endeavor. But because I was now given permission to try it with the possibility perhaps of a different decision later on, I ended up coming here. And it was only a short time after that that I, I discovered this affinity that I have for the work. And it has, it has transformed my life. Right. It's transformed my life. It's it's still it's still hard. It's challenging. It's hard every day, but it's it's hard in a good way. Right. It's 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 building muscle. It's like working out, you know, is you don't get stronger by sitting around. You don't get tougher by not handling difficult situations. And so that would be my advice is if you're faced with a, a hard choice, make a decision. Right. Make a decision. What happened was my depression lifted. And I was able to get on with my life. Amazing. Uh, thank you so much, Sandy. And you've mentioned uh, Lou a couple of times. Can I throw a quick plug in for, for Lou here? Because I've got to share with you that your wife, Lou Solomon, has made a tremendous impact in my life as well for a number of reasons. The, the most important one I can think of right now is that she is my speech coach, meaning that I took her training course some number of years ago. My wife did as well uh, some number of years ago, and she leads a business called Interact is the name of her business. I've been to the speech training. I'm a better public speaker as a result of knowing her. So if anyone out there is looking to level up their game in public speaking, then Lou Solomon with Interact here in Charlotte, North Carolina is a great place to do that. Uh, and she's amazing. And she's absolutely amazing. And uh, I'm delighted every time I, I hear of her from her and see her. So I wanted she out there. I, I love her too. She's just freaking awesome. I appreciate that. Lou has a lot of credibility in her work because she's by nature extremely private, intensely introverted, very, very shy. And she has, you know, her transformation has been to become a paid public speaker. And she often speaks on on topics associated with, you know, the imposter syndrome or you know, how to overcome your fears. Well, she wrote a fantastic book that had a major impact in my life. I, and if I, may, if I get the name wrong, correct me, Freeing Your Radical Hero? Correct. 
freeing your radical hero. Uh, and that's where Matt the Lionheart was born. You know, that is the kind of the alter ego that I have when I need to step up with my courage, when I need to step up and transform myself into this, this place that I do when I do public speaking or when I walk into a room full of people and gain that confidence. I simply step into Matt the Lionheart. Uh, and I learned that from her, from reading your book, Freeing Your Radical Hero. So I would certainly love just to share that about Lou. Uh, and of course, Sandy, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Uh, I love you. You've been a tremendous inspiration in my life in so many ways. Thanks for sharing your story, my friend. Thank you, man. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Eternal Optimist podcast. You can check the show notes for information about today's episode. And please share the show with that friend who is wanting to think bigger. We'll see you next time.